Hi, this is Joe. And I'm Amy. And this is What Makes It Fun with Joe. And Amy. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to another episode of What Makes It Fun with Joe and Amy. I am Joe. And I'm Amy. And we are entertainment professionals talking about what makes something fun uh, from all disciplines of entertainment. I am a... I dabble, I am a video game designer and I dabble in pro wrestling, stunt work. Um, I've done a little Disney Imagineering and uh, some other improvisation. And Amy is an actress, a voice actress, um, and uh, an improviser as well. And we're going to tell you everything that makes something fun. No questions asked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this episode... Really, 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 really awesome. We have Rolly Crump. Um, he is a legendary, he's a Disney legend, a certified Disney legend. Um, he worked, um, he did animation for the Walt Disney Company, and he also worked on uh, attractions for Disneyland, for, um, <clears throat> for Disney Imagineering, such as Haunted Mansion, and It's a Small World. So it's so nice of him to come on. He's such an amazing guy. What did you think of Broly, Amy? Broly was awesome. He has a beautiful house that we went to to do the recording. Mm-hmm. And he's a really like charming individual, really smart. His wife was there. She was lovely, too. Yeah. And we got posters at the end oh, of Oh, yeah. <laughs> we got really cool posters. I'll post a picture of it uh, on here. Um, so after that, we have a round of uh, almost fun and certified fun uh, of Disney attractions. Uh, but... Until then, enjoy this interview with Rolly Crump. Uh, and I want to start off with um, when, when was the what was the first thing you created as a child, like a, a product, a, a joke, or a gag, or a cartoon? Oh uh, well, I, you know, you I grew up on uh, funny papers, you know, way back when, and uh-huh. so I was always interested in the comic strips. Mm-hmm. And so actually, when I drew, I actually would draw from comic strips like Prince Valiant. And, uh, you know, those kind of uh, cartoons, which were more kind of like uh, illustrations. But there, I really wasn't getting into any of the humor aspect of it at that time. You know, just strictly that. Okay. Um, do you, how, how old were you when you started drawing? What, three? About, wow. Yeah, <laughs> you have to get my book. I've got a book out. And there's a picture uh, of me, of Santa Claus and the reindeer that I did when I was three years old. So, and it's pretty, you can actually make it out. You can actually see what it is, you know. So, no, I uh, I started drawing as soon as I could hold a pencil. Obviously, my mom said that I just couldn't stop drawing. So, that was it. And she was very uh, supportive and would buy me the pencils and the, and the little tablets. In fact, I have a, a little tablet about that thick that goes clear back to when I was three. Wow. And uh, when did when did you first when did you first start making money off of your art? <laughs> when I got a job at Disney, <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, that was the only way I'd make money off my art was going to work in animation, mm-hmm. and uh, they they couldn't, and that was only thirty five dollars a week, and I had to work on weekends building help build sewer manholes, so that I could afford to work at Disney. Wow. Oh, so you had two jobs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And most of us that were in animation that were in-betweeners had another source of income, you know. Oh. Uh, um, and when did you, like, how, how did you, you eventually you got to just only working in art uh, without having to work two jobs. Yeah. Right? 
Um, what was what was your role when you switched over? Well, I was an in-betweener on Peter Pan. That's when I was hired. And so I worked in, as an in-betweener all through Peter Pan. And then by the time we got to Lady and the Tramp, then I got um, moved up to Breakdown. There's a steps, you know, mm -hmm. in-between, Breakdown, Cleanup, Assistant. Mm -hmm. And so I was working my way up the ladder, you know, and you get a little raise every time you get higher on the ladder. <laughs> Uh, and, and for for those who don't know, um, what were the the animation projects that you worked on? Well, there was first there was Peter Pan as an in betweener, and then there was Lady and the Tramp, and then there was um, 101 Dalmatians. There was Sleeping Beauty, and uh, those are the the classics that I worked on, as well as the the Mickey Mouse cartoons for Saturday. You know, we did a lot of those. Oh, that's so cool. And then, how did you get into Imagineering, as it's known now? Well, um, that's a kind of a good story. Um, Walt was always, he was interesting, that he was always looking for somebody that had kind of a imagination. And when he was developing Disneyland, he used, uh, to be art directors, he used a lot of the fellows from animation to be art directors for the dark rides and things. And then when Disneyland opened, <clears throat> He started looking for more people to bring into WED, which was the company that designed Disneyland. And he liked to draw from within. He always liked to pull people out of animation because they, he knew that they would understand him, you know. So I had made some little propellers out of a pencil a racer that I had spinning. And uh, I had a lot of fun with that. And I got so excited about it that I started building all kinds of little abstract sculptures with propellers on them. Uh -huh. And in my office, uh, the, it, it was beautiful because air conditioning would run those propellers. Mm -hmm. So I probably had about 30 different little sculptures uh, with these propellers going. And I had an exhibit along with my marijuana posters <laughs> in the studio library. <clears throat> and... Uh, the gal, the, the head of the librarian called me one day. She said, well, Walt was in today and saw your exhibit. And I said, oh, my God. I said, did he see the dope posters? And she said, yeah. I said, what did he say? She said, he just laughed. And that was Walt. I mean, he just accepted things for what they were. But I think what he did was he saw the imagination that I had and the spark of design. So I was asked to join WED and, uh, in 1959 and leave animation and go over and work at WED. Did did you have any idea what it was, Wed, before you joined? Like, did you know? I knew was... nothing about it. Just like I knew nothing about animation. When I got a job at Disney, I just wanted to draw. I didn't even know what animation was. And the same thing was true with Wed because Wed really had not established any really something you could put your hands on or say, yeah, well, that's a design company that does this and this and that, you know. Hmm. So in in the early days of Wed. What was the creative process like? Like, were there restrictions on you, or did they just let you develop whatever you wanted? Well, he <laughs> just turned you loose. Um, we'd have work sessions with Walt, and he'd give us all an assignment, and then we would go do it. And, of course, the interesting thing about getting those assignments was doing something you'd never done before. And I do know that um, one of my earliest assignments was to work on the Tiki Room. And I remember being in the meeting with Walt on the Tiki Room, and uh, all of a sudden there was a <clears throat> uh, illustration done by the art director of, of all these bird cages with birds in them and tikis in this. It was going to be a restaurant. 
And Walt looked at it and said, no, John. He says, you can't have birds in there. And John said, why not? And Walt said, because they'll poop in the food. <laughs> and John said, no, no. Walt, he says, they're stuffed birds. And Walt said, no, Disney doesn't stuff birds. And then John said, well, Walt, really, they look like they're stuffed, but they're little mechanical birds. He said, oh, they're little mechanical birds. And then somebody else in the meeting said, well, gee, if there's a, a mechanical bird in there, he could sing to another bird at the other part of the uh, restaurant and maybe we can have a little choir so that's how that all got started and then walt uh turned to me because he said well if this is a restaurant he said um we have to have something to entertain people while they're waiting in line so he asked me to design the pre-show tiki's out front and which i did and i did sketches on them and walt bought off on the sketches and uh, then the next thing I know, um, I went to the, the uh, sculptor and I said, well, Walt said these are okay to build and to sculpt. He says, I don't have time for it, Rolly. I said, who's going to sculpt them? And he says, you are. And I said, I've never sculpted before. He said, well, you are now. So he taught me how to build an armature and how to put the clay on and how to sculpt. So I, I started sculpting the majority of the tiki's in the tiki room I, I sculpted, which, in fact, one of those pieces is out front that I did. Oh, the one we saw. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So for those who don't know, what what are some of the designs that you worked on in the Disneyland parks? In, in Disneyland? Yeah. Oh, well, um, what you basically do, you do anything they ask you to do. Um, I did the elevator bandstand in Tomorrowland. I did the temporary bandstand in Tomorrowland. I did a, a ticket booth in Tomorrowland. Uh, I also did... Um, a little uh, shop that the fellow did the caricatures of, you know, he'd do caricatures of. I did the interior design for um, Sunkissed on Main Street, and um, I did the, the uh, uh, what do you call it, the, the uh, bazaar in Adventureland. Um, of course, <laughs> then I did Small World Facade and the clock, the Small World clock, and uh, so I, ju I just kind of touched on everything because that was the neatest thing about working there is that you never knew what your assignment was going to be, and so you just did it. I worked on the, a lot of, I spent three years on the Haunted Mansion, yeah. and that was, that's getting back to a question you asked earlier. What did you do when they gave you something to do? Well, Yale Gracie and I were put together. He was a, a background painter, and Walt said, I want you guys to think about the Haunted Mansion, what you might put in there. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. We didn't know what the assignment was. So we started reading books on ghosts. We went to uh, movies and watched ghost movies. And uh, luckily, Yale was kind of a, a Geppetto. He was a tinker toy guy, and he was really clever. So he, he's the one that discovered the, the head in the bowl, which is Loyota. Yeah. What he did was he got a, a loop projector of a film from Hans Conry's face on Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, who was the fiercest one of all. And so we, he projected that on a little Beethoven sculpture. And when he did that, uh, the little sculpture looked like it came to life. It was incredible. Nothing lined up, but at the same time, the, the projection went, you know, wrapped itself around the face. And we showed that to Walt, and Walt just loved it, just loved it. So then we took it to the next level, you know, to, for a, a real person's face to project on. So I think, um, and the other things I did, I, I was sent to the park as supervising art director for Disneyland for three years, and I had a, what they call maintenance, uh, maintenance art director, and so I got to work with all the divisions, 
and uh, I did the interior for the little candy shop. I mean, you just did, every, it was just a job, and you did whatever th you were asked to do, which was kind of fun. <laughs> um, so when you're developing something for, like, the Haunted Mansion, for example, how do you know what's going to work for the audience? How do you know if it'll be a hit? Uh, I think it's staging. I think you, when you work in animation, you learn staging. Mm -hmm. and, I, and that's true about artwork as well as uh, what you're doing is stage it properly to where the, when the public sees it, they understand it. And uh, that all came out of animation. And I do that the same thing with my art. Uh, I stage my art. Mm -hmm. And so they, I think it's just a matter of balance, staging and balance. Mm -hmm. And and how do you, uh, like for, for the Haunted Mansion, because that's my favorite attraction, uh, how do you know if something's going to be like too scary or... It's, it's exciting enough, but you don't want to scare the audience. How do you find a balance? Well, yeah, there's, uh, it balanced itself, believe it or not. Um, Walt always wanted it to be scary, mm -hmm. scarier than it turned out. Uh, and the management didn't want it scary. And so then Mark Davis and Claude Coates were assigned to design it, and they worked together on it, and I think they did a beautiful balance. It's, not, it's, a, it's spooky, but it's not scary. You know, it's working that way. It's, as soon as you <clears throat> put somebody in a car and move them into a black area, they start screaming anyway. And, you know, it, really, it's true. And so I know in the Haunted Mansion, you put them in the Omnimover and take them in the black tunnel, and the girls start screaming immediately, and they're not looking at anything. So. <laughs> That's funny. Um, did, did it start off as, as a mansion in New Orleans, or was it another idea? No, first? no, it was. Walt always wanted a, a Haunted Mansion. Oh. At Disneyland, he the day he opened Disneyland, that was one of the first things he wanted to get in there when he could, and he put a lot of the people that were an, in animation, that were animators, to come up with ideas of what the mansion might have in it, mm. and so there people had worked on that for four or five years before Yale and I even started working on it. So a lot of homework done on that. <laughs> um, so so years later, you opened up your own design company. Um, I believe. Um, yeah, Design at, 27. Mm -hmm. um, did you take any principles from Walt Disney about how to lead a creative team with you when you did oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, sitting in work sessions with Walt, and I did for seven years, automatically you can't, you can't believe what you absorb. Mm -hmm. You don't really realize how he's training you because you just think it's a job, but you do what he tells you to do and you follow through on everything. And I didn't realize what was inside this little head of mine until I was in business for myself. And I was going to have to, I was in a fishing village design project up in San Francisco. And I had to sit in with a bunch of architects. And I thought, oh, shit, I've never, ooh, architects. Because I was a little worried about having to face an architect because I never had to because I was always in charge. <laughs> and I sat and listened to these architects. And I thought to myself, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Walt taught us so beautifully the balance of design. And then I realized that their, their uh, sense didn't have that showmanship value, and they really didn't understand. So I, all of a sudden I thought, oh, my God, I did learn something working with Walt. And then, all of, and then after that, my confidence was really there. And I used to, then I got to challenge them and, and make them look a little foolish now and then. So. <laughs> That's cool. Um, do you, do you remember any of the 
like the the theories that Walt Disney had about education or about like entertainment or anything that he would always repeat or well no it's kind of hard to say there was a theory about uh, what he did everything he just did came right out of his head he was uh, you know see he was the best casting director that ever lived so he knew exactly what you did or what you were good at and so he would assign you to whatever he felt would best suit you. Mm-hmm. In fact, he'd always ask you, you know, what are you doing these days? You know, he's, he was interested in you as a person. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think because of that, he was able to draw that out. But uh, no, I can't get any, um, can't think of anything. Is there anything that went like when you're designing it that is like your stamp or your staple? Like you always design things that have this element or that element, something that you like. It's it's just part of you. I know that I uh, I have that little sketching line that I use a lot, and it seems to always show up in my personal artwork as well as um, a lot of the uh, design work that I do. I I think it's um, it's just a style. It's kind of hard to say what what my style is, but evidently people that seem the work that I've done at Disneyland they all know what Rolly did because it's they're related to it. And I have a hard time figuring out what they see, but uh, evidently it's there. Now, Marie can tell you about that little shop that I did, you know, Mickey's Mart, and how she loved it. And I don't know, you know, what, what was it that... Well, I didn't even know you. No, I know. I just, it was the black and white that I loved about that. But there is something about your art that people recognize right away, and a lot of it is the, your printing, for one thing. Your printing. Oh, my printing, yes. Well, that's in my posters, a lot of mm-hmm. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think, you'd, I think you have a style and you don't know it. I mean, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, in, in my artwork, I definitely have a style, and you can see that and understand that. And um, a lot of fine detail lines. Yeah. All of your early art, especially. Oh, my, yeah. <laughs> when I could hold a pencil or a pen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, because a lot of your the stuff you're showing the the bank stuff that yeah. you're making, a lot of it looked like it could go with the Museum of the Weird, like you could see the the style starting to. Well, like, see, you see, you see a style that I know nothing about. <laughs> no, no. Do you have a, a design piece that you did that's like your absolute favorite, or was your opus, or anything in particular? Well, I have I have a couple paintings in the house that are my favorite. Yeah. And, uh, well, to be honest with you, everything I've done, I've loved doing. You know, you just fall in love with it, and you never fall out of love with it. Um, And the other thing, too, is I think imagination is important now. There's an interesting thing about when I was in animation, they had an exhibit at the studio to where everyone in the company could submit a piece of artwork. And I had been in a room with painters, real fine painters that did paintings like Picasso and Lautrec and everything. And so I thought to myself, no, I, I, don't, I can't put any of my artwork in there because I don't, don't think it deserves being in there. And so I didn't, I didn't put anything in there. And I went to the show because I always kind of felt that if you're an artist or a painter, you have it in a beautiful frame and it's a beautiful picture. But in, there was this fellow that did a uh, series of gargoyles sitting on a log flying kites. <laughs> and I fell in love with that. And I thought, my God, there's a sense of humor. It's, it's almost cartoony, but it's in a frame and it's a painting. 
And I just absolutely, it, it opened me up like you wouldn't believe. So I went home and did lobsters drinking martinis. <laughs> and I had that in my exhibit in the library, that first exhibit I've had, and numerous, and no, I mean, and numerous times I've made, I've copied that. I have one of them hanging in my garage right now. I just love the fact of the lobsters drinking martinis, and it gets back to in those days in animation, everybody drank a martini. So <laughs> anyway, that so just let your imagination run with you a little bit, and so I then that's when I developed my own personal style in my artwork was the fact that uh, there was always some humor to it, like the lobsters. That's cool. Um, uh, kind of going back a little bit, were, were your parents, growing up, were your parents very supportive of your art? Oh, work? God. It was just my mom. My mom and dad got divorced when I was young. Mm -hmm. But my mom was completely supportive, always. I mean, she was there for me all the time. And when I was hired at Disney, um, they were only going to pay me $35 a week, and I was making 72 working in a pottery. And I thought, I can't afford to go to work for Disney. So, And they offered me the job. <clears throat> so I said, I'll call you back tomorrow. So I went and talked to my mom. And she says, honey, you always wanted to work for Disney. She says, go for it. It'll work its way out. And I did. So I got the job. and But she was always there, 100%. I, there's a cute story about that. She um, got me into Chouinard Art Institute. Mm -hmm. And so I did go to Art, Chouinard Art Institute for six Saturdays when I was 16. Well, they were. The little lady was nice enough to walk us through the different departments and to show us, you know, some of the different uh, classes that you might take. Yeah. And so she she took us both into a, a nude class and there was this naked lady standing there. <laughs> my mom put her hands over my eyes. She says, you're not taking that class. It took me right, it took me right out the door. So anyway, it was kind of, it was kind of cute. <laughs> That's funny. Um, what, what's your favorite thing about all the attractions and all the work that you've done is it is do you like the audience reaction or do you like just creating a piece of art or what what's your favorite thing about it everything everything absolutely everything um, I think the favorite thing is to come up with the idea to to produce it and yes you want it, uh, the public that's looking at it to enjoy it and you have to enjoy it as well so I think it's kind of a personal love affair you have with all of your art. Mm. It's very, very special. All piece, I've been in love with every piece I've ever done. Um, some of them I'm madly in love with, but you know mm -hmm. that's only because they, they, they. I went beyond the. I mean, like Marie always says, you know, you always color outside the lines, <laughs> and I think that's a good, a good statement. That I did. I've always colored outside the lines and always done things that are a little bit different. I know that. I did learn, but I learned so much. I learned from all those people that I worked with at the studio. And uh, one thing I learned was they all the painters that I ever knew, and, and even the famous painters, they'll take a subject and do a whole series of art or paintings on one subject. So I did that. I've got um, dragon thighs. I did a whole series of women with dragon thighs that are tattoos on their, on their thigh. Um, then I did a whole series of Oriental Japanese art. And uh, then I met Marie on Day of the Dead. Uh, she came to my exhibit, and so we, we've been very close. And Day of the Dead was one that I did a whole series of paintings on Day of the Dead. And I had an exhibit, and I damn near sold all 25 of the paintings I had in there. And I thought, I don't believe this. They're buying skulls. You know, why are they buying skulls? What is so good about that? You know, so, yeah, I think, it, I think the thing, the most important thing is the fun that you have with yourself. Mm. You know, what goes on up in here. 
So like, so you have to like really have just enjoy, not take yourself so seriously. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh no, don't take yourself seriously. Hmm. No, that gets you into trouble if you do because then the ego pops up and that's not good. <laughs> Who are your inspirations, like both artistically and comedically? Oh well, I've got jillions of you know. I've got a whole book on my gods and goddesses. I think I fell in love with every artist that I worked that I ever saw, and I've been influenced by every artist I've ever seen, and I constantly borrow from them in my own personal artwork. So my personal artwork has, I don't know how many pieces of how many artists that are part of it. It just it just it, it it's a melting pot. You you know you you let your imagination grow and you pull these the best pieces out, and it's like a menu. You know, you pick out what you feel is best for the particular piece that you're working on. Um, when did you first learn to do that, to just to trust your imagination? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I've always had it. I mean, you know, it's, the imaginations have always been part of me, and that's because I mentioned in my book, the radio. You know, I grew up with the radio, so you had to have pictures in your head when you listened to the radio. So I think people that were artists probably were more influenced by the radio than anything else in their lives because you had to you had to form pictures right um is there do you still do you still watch the current things now like in theme parks like the newest attractions that are released no no <laughs> no i <laughs> i haven't seen or heard of anything yet that uh i feel it hasn't passed a certain level before i'll be interested in it um I don't know, I guess because all those years and uh, doing all that and being involved, because I worked with a lot of theme parks, I worked with a lot of restaurants, I worked with a lot of developers, so you know, you, you kind of cut, touched on everything. Mm. And, uh, but I'm always looking to see if there's something worthwhile to go see or get involved with, mm. but something that I feel that I could learn from. You want to be a sponge and you want to absorb as much as you can. And what happens is that the sponge looks for what it wants to, you know, hold on to. Hmm. Um, uh, do you have any advice for people who want to be like a Disney Imagineer or work in theme parks and attractions? Do you have advice on how they can go about that? Um, be a good sponge. <laughs> I think really, seriously, uh, never think that you know it all. Um, always look for something. I always looked, and Walt was the same way. He was always looking for something he'd never seen before. And what I did in most cases were things that he'd never seen before, like the Museum of the Weird. He'd never seen any stuff like that. So he's always intrigued with that. And I think that's the secret to becoming a new designer or whatever, is think of things that have never been done before and a new way to approach things, you know, and uh, just let your imagination run wild. <laughs> And believe in all your crazy ideas. <laughs> uh, that's that's hard for a lot of uh, young designers to, because they want to do what's been done yeah. because it works. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to trust just yeah. new yeah. ideas. Well, I think the biggest problem is that whole industry has gotten oversaturated. Mm. You know, uh, Walt built the industry with Disneyland because there was no, they always say paint outside the box. Well. There was no box when we started, and we built the box. But uh, I think it's pretty tough for kids today. I mean, uh, I've often thought about teaching many times, and I thought if I taught, I'd want the kids to do like what Walt did with me, is, is what are you interested in? And find out what they feel comfortable with and, and give them assignments 
in that area. You don't give assignments to kids that are, uh, that, that are going to make them awkward and make them feel like they're going to draw something that is not going to be good. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure to find out where their confidence is and work with their confidence. Mm -hmm. um, were, you, were you a big Disney fan before you worked for them? Oh, God, yes. Oh, oh okay. yeah. I saw, I saw uh, The Three Little Pigs when I was four years old. I was madly in love with you no. Know, I did. I mean, I, there wasn't an artist on this planet when Walt was around that didn't want to work for Walt. You know. Oh. Even uh, you know the abstract painter uh, uh, that does all the uh, you know, I can't think of his name right now, but he he worked for Walt for in fact a lot of artists came and worked for Walt for short periods of time. Oh. And, uh, so it's. Uh, I think everybody that, when Walt was alive and producing what he did back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, any artist that was around or young artist wanted to work for him because they were because they could see, they could see imagination, they could see entertainment, and of course Walt was the best story man that was ever put on the planet, and so I think the story is the bottom line. If you if you have something that now I do know in my artwork, all my artwork has a story behind it. Every piece I do. There's a story there, yeah. Oh, so you, you like develop the characters and you're just capturing a scene. Yeah, with them. yeah, yeah. I've got one piece that I've done that's uh, it's about the Cotton Club. And the whole poster is uh, stories about the Cotton Club, if you know what the story is that you're looking for. If you look at it, just say, oh, that's a nice piece of art or whatever, not realizing why I designed the orchestra the way I did or why I actually put real copy on there that was true, you know. No, no cover charge, and things like that. So I think that thing is that you you do a lot of. It's like when you do a, any project, you have to do a lot of homework uh, to where you feel confident before you start actually designing it. And it's the same way with your animation and your attractions. You have story behind everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think made Walt Disney uh, a good story man? Born a good story man. I don't know what made him a good story man. He um, he was a cartoonist to begin with, and with imagination, and and had a feel for story. I know that you learn story when you work for Walt, and you learn staging when you work for Walt, and those are just things that are, that rub off on you, you know. And uh, but I don't know what made him a good story man. He just I mean he, he was a farm boy for God's sakes, you know. And listen to the radio, obviously. <laughs> when you're telling a story, what are some like key points that you like to hit? God, when it comes to artwork, I think the key point is that it's a pleasant piece of work to look at. It's intriguing. And they enjoy it, not realizing that, that you've had already had an affair with it. And you and the a piece of artwork are very close. And uh, if some of that can sneak out and let you know uh, what, what's going on in there. It's, um, I, I'll give you a good example is, um, I always wanted to do a woman with a tattoo. And I wanted to do that for years, but I didn't know what the tattoo would be or anything. And so then I decided to do a woman seated and I was going to put this tattoo on her leg. And I thought, well, she's Oriental, Japanese, I'll put a, uh, a dragon on there. So I did a, a dragon tattoo. In fact, that painting's hanging in the bedroom on her leg. And um, I took it to an exhibit. 
and they said, what's the title? And I said, um, uh, Japanese Dragon Thigh. <laughs> and so that's where that came from. And I had so much fun because that was a little story right there. I did, I did a woman with a tattoo and it turned out to be kind of cute. So then I did about six or seven of them, but they were all different nationalities. So there was a, the Japanese one, there was Mardi Gras Dragon Thigh, and Marie has the uh, Bob Fosse Dragon Thigh, which Bob is the Fosse. Broadway showgirl Dragon <laughs> Thigh. Yeah, and the, uh, the one Gypsy. I... Uh, oh, Gypsy, yes. Yeah, because she told me, she always told me she was kind of like a gypsy, so I said, oh, I got a painting that'll fit you, so I gave her the, the painting of the gypsy dragon thigh. Um, Did that help? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I want to make sure I'm staying with the right answer. Um, do, you, do you remember the first time that you met Walt Disney? Oh, yeah. Uh, I had worked at the studio for almost nine years and seen him and passed him in the hallway but I'd never met him. And so he knew about me, and uh, that's when I was invited to join WET as a designer. And it was Ward Kimball that was kind of the fellow that got Walt interested in me. And so when I first met Walt, we shook hands, and Walt said, uh, Roland, he says, it's a pleasure having you on board. And I said, Mr. Disney, I appreciate that as well. And so he said, Roland, he said, it's Walt, and don't you ever forget it. He always went on a first-name basis. Mm -hmm. So everything was, uh, and that was the way he was. Whenever he ran into you, he just talked directly to you about what you were interested in. And so, in fact, one of the cute stories is one of the janitors at Disney Studios, it was a good friend of mine, the head janitor, Claude, he'd been there for years. One day, they just repainted the main hallway green. And Walt's walking down the hallway and he sees Claude and he says to Claude, the janitor, he says, what do you think of the color, Claude? And Claude told me later, he said, I don't know what to tell him. He says, I'm a janitor. I don't really think about color. And he says, oh, I like it, Walt. It's all good. And so, but I mean, see, Walt always would talk to you at your level and he would be interested in, in what that was. You know, he wanted to know about that. I know I had a, uh, a gas pump that I had gotten out of a trash and down at Disneyland, and I had the gas pump, uh, gasoline pump, brought to my office, and I had it outside my office. And Walt, and I, did, I was going to make a piece of sculpture out of it. And mm -hmm. Walt came by one day, he says, Ronnie, what's that? I said, it's a gas pump. He says, I know that. He says, what are you going to do with it? I said, I really don't know. I haven't thought it out yet. And he looked, and there was all kinds of spiders living in there. He said, well, get the black widows out of there before you get started. <laughs> but I mean, that was it. He would just talk to you, your language, you know, which was beautiful. That's so cool. Um, uh, is, is there anything, uh, any attractions that you wish you could have done differently uh, or you could change about them? Well, I, I think if I had the charge of doing the mansion, I would have done it differently. Mm. Um, I would have surrounded myself. I always like to have teams of people to work with and let a lot of their ideas come out and run with it. Mm. And um, I think that sometimes a lot of the art directors always want to be in charge and, and do everything their way, not realizing the importance of a team. Uh -huh. And I think if I could have put the right team together, we could have, done, I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with it, I'm, I don't mean, but it just being it doing it a different way, that's mm -hmm. all. But I think I'd like to have seen more imagination by teamwork, mm -hmm. you know. Um, what, what, in your experience, in all the creative things you've done, what constitutes like good teamwork? Like what makes you a good team member? In um, well, you need a good director. 
you need somebody in charge that really has a feel for it. And I think that that has to be a good art director. And in order to be a good art director, you have to be a designer. And you have to have designed a lot of things before you become an art director. And that means that you see the overall picture. And that's what Walt did. He always saw the big picture whenever there was a project. Like a good example was that once he gave you an assignment, he, he saw the end product. And uh, he'd see it long before you did. He knew exactly how it was going to turn out. And then he'd be pleasantly surprised if it turned out a little bit better than he anticipated. <laughs> Did that happen often, that it would be better than he thought? or <laughs> No, I think most of the time it, it came up to what he wanted. Oh. You know, he always set the bar pretty high, and you had to get up to that bar. And uh, that, I think what made him happy, you know, he the interesting thing, a lot of people crab because he, he never thanked anybody. Mm-hmm. The, the thank he gave you was that you still worked for him. No, that you had a job and he'd give you another another uh, thing. And so uh, his way of thanking you was saying, okay, now let's, what are we going to do next? You know? Yeah, he doesn't sound like, um, from other stories I've heard, he doesn't sound like he was that mean. Oh, God, no. Yeah. I only saw him lose it twice in the, in the seven years I knew him, and they both, the guys that got it, deserved it. So it was one of those things. I don't know how he put up with a lot of the crap that he did but he did he was really sweet about it right because he also did business development and a bunch of other things besides oh yeah oh god yes yeah and you've done that too when you when you started your company right yeah yeah i think the whole thing is you have to have a when you have a company and you have a team you have to get way ahead of them and see the end product Uh and that was something i learned from walt and once you do that, then you just turn each one of the people loose on it and keep an eye on it, and you work with them, you know, just like Walt did. So, what was some something that you learned from Walt? I think believe we're talking about patience or honesty. honesty? Oh, well, the one thing, uh, uh, which honesty? One? Yeah, honesty. And how everybody else responded to him. Oh and yeah, you yeah. Decided you were never going to do. No, something. no. Uh, yeah, I always decide after that's one of the reasons when I co- grabbed his coattail was I wanted to make sure that I understood because everybody else would kind of go in a, a different direction. And um, I, I I don't know. It was just um, I learned to be honest with him. And when I designed the Tower of the Four Winds for the World's Fair, uh, and I built a model on it, and uh, it was manufactured, and I had to drive Walt down to take a look at it. It was built in Los Angeles. And the engineers that got a hold of it and made everything super fat. And I was really, really upset with it. And um, I didn't like it at all because it, it lost the delicacy that I was trying to create. It had over 90 propellers on it, and it was a gorgeous piece of work. But I had to take Walt down, drive him down in a company car, and have him take a look at it. And Walt said to me, he says, uh, Roland, he said, um, uh, how, how do you feel about that? What do you think about it? And I said, I think it's a piece of crap. Now, I don't know of anyone that would tell Walt that their piece of artwork or design was a piece of crap. And he looked at me and says, what? And I, and I said, I think it's a piece of crap. He said, it can't be a piece of crap. It cost me $200,000. <laughs> well, what happened was he understood. He had seen the model. He knew that I was upset about the execution mm-hmm. of it. But he also said to me, now, Roland, remember, when you design something, Engineers have to make it stand up, so you've got to give them their credit due. And that was uh, a true story about almost everything I worked with him on. I know that 
when Yale and I first started working on Disneyland projects, one of the old art directors said, now remember, you're, you're in charge, you're the God. You call all the shots, make everybody answer to what you want. And the first meeting I had with Walt was, he said, you know, when you guys are designing something, don't forget the electricians, don't forget the air conditioning units. He says, because those, that's just as important as what you're trying to create. So he saw, again, the big picture and wanted you to always look at the big picture. What I did, I did that. So um, yeah, that's, <laughs> what was the other one? No, there was another one we were going to talk uh, about. The Walt Disney, if he cussed a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, he didn't cost a lot. Cost a lot. I know when I was in animation, long before I ever got to know Walt, I used to paint on rocks. And um, the woman that was the uh, nurse that we had there at the, at the at the studio came to me one day and she says, "Rolly, I know you paint on rocks." She says, "I want you to paint something for Walt for Christmas. I want to give him a Christmas present." And I said, "Okay." I said, "What do you want me to paint?" She said, "The word shit." And I said, yeah, she said this because it's his favorite cuss word. <laughs> so I painted a little rock that said shit on it, and we wrapped it up in a beautiful Japanese box and gave it, and she gave it to him for Christmas. And I asked her about a week later, I said, did Walt enjoy his little present? She says, he loved it. She said, by the way, you got screen credit. Well, he didn't know me from Adam in those days, so he could have told her that Rolly Crump did it, but he'd say, oh, who's he, you know? <laughs> That's so cool. Um, did... Do you think do you think Walt was ever like satisfied with the work that he's ever done? Like was he ever did he ever stop and be like, "Okay, I'm good. I I no, like what I've done." No, no. No. No, he was in warp drive. I mean, he was just going straight ahead. He had Epcot in mind. Golly knows what he had after Epcot, but I mean, no, he uh his his whole growing process and learning and what he was producing was he was just taking him in well he took everybody into levels they'd never been before anyway hmm. and so he was way ahead of everybody what he was doing hmm. which was great it was just too bad that uh, he didn't live to get some of that accomplished yeah um is there anything you'd like to be like known for like as as like to leave the generations behind is there anything that you want to leave like your artwork your style your no, I think um, I think it gets back to coloring outside the lines and being true to your crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. I think um, yeah, if if I can get them to be a good sponge, I think probably the number one is to be a good sponge. Right. No matter whether you're an artist or not an artist, be a good sponge about the career that you're entering and going to be part of. And take your time and do your homework and be a good sponge and work hard and that's it. It's pretty simple when you stop and look at it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for being sure. a part of this podcast and taking time out of your schedule to be interviewed. Oh, great. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> this is great. Thank you. Very good. All right. Uh, Rolly is such an amazing guy. He, you know, as, as you've heard, uh, it was so cool to have him on and, um, yeah, he's just just amazing, amazing, amazing man. Um, he gave some really good advice about you know create the creative field and how to stay true to your vision. And it's so amazing that how simplified things become become because he said like it's really easy if you think about it. Just show up, work hard, and listen. Be a sponge. Mm -hmm. And it's it seems simple, and you know, uh, it just seems too simple to be true but i mean he's obviously lived through it and it's kind of really good words to um 
you know, just live your life by. All right, so let's do a little bit of almost fun. This is fun. Almost. All right, so my almost fun for Disneyland is... Toontown? <laughs> yes, Toontown. That's what it was. And it, you know, everything in Disneyland is pretty much well-polished and well-designed. Um, my issue with Toontown is uh, it's in the corner of the park where there's no... As far as like a flow goes like usually every part of Disneyland you can go in and out any direction and kind of get there's more than one way to get into it Toontown you have to go to the corner where there's not a lot of attractions leading up to it and then there's nowhere else to go after that you're just trapped so I think that's the reason why it's not a very high traffic area just because it doesn't have a very good flow to it there's also um, like it's it doesn't feel like it was that well developed like it's a very entertaining part obviously but the it's feels like it's mostly for kids like there's a lot of just walking around and oh cool that lamppost is broken and uh there's a there's a wacky thing uh, wacky uh uh you know um what is that called the trolley like going up and down or around like okay cool uh, it's just it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of I don't know what it is. It's just not very, not very engaging to me. Like I don't really care about it, and I honestly don't know why. <laughs> it just doesn't feel that. See, I wondered though if that's you know for moms with young kids, like you know you have an older kid who's like eight or something that wants to go to Disneyland and you want to take them, but you also have like a three year old with you. Right. You take the whole family. That three year old maybe that's their place. That's their jam. Tune down. <laughs> and you're not a three year old, Joe. So. That's true. That might be, maybe that's, I think that is the entire point of it, is that like, oh my God, these kids, little kid can go in this house. Look, I'm in a schoolhouse. Ah, I think that's the problem with it. It's that Disney created every section of his park for kids and for adults. Mm. He didn't want to leave anyone out. In fact, that's the reason why he made Disneyland. He was sitting in a park bench in Griffith Park at a carousel one day, and his daughters were having fun in the carousel, and he was just sitting there, and he's like, there should be a place where kids and adults could have fun together. And Toontown is not that. It's just for the kids. And adults are just kind of like, all right, it's not that fun for most adults. So I think that's my problem with it, is that it doesn't follow the, the reason why Walt built the rest of the park. You it, know what would be the other like uh, balance to that? Is mm -hmm. to take that mom with her three-year-old and eight-year-old and see where else she could take the three-year-old in the park and if the three-year-old's actually entertained. Because right. a lot, like that three-year-old might not be able to ride a lot of the rides that you really love, like Splash Mountain, for example. A kid might not be able to go on that one. And then, like, what do you do with your kid while you wait? Yeah, that's true. I don't, However, I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't have a three-year-old. I'm not a mom. I'm just trying to think from like what perspective it would be most useful. I did take like my six-year-old nephew on Splash Mountain, and it was very entertaining for me. Yeah, <laughs> but, well, that's another thing. Um, when you are a mother with a young child and you are at Disney or Disneyland, um, the, that then one of the nicest things is seeing your kid get excited and entertained. Like yeah. they love that. So in a way, if it's parents taking their little kid to Toontown mm -hmm. and seeing them like lose lose their shit over like the wacky yeah. trolley, like that is fun for the parents. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be, but if you're uh, don't have kids and you're older, yeah, and it's not fun at all. 
But um, it's funny because when Disneyland first opened, much like it is today, a lot of the demographic that goes there are you know twenties, thirty year olds. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because he because he built it for everyone, you know, and it's mostly twenty and thirty year olds. It would be really interesting to like actually get some of the statistics about Disneyland and like why did certain people go to the park and like for yeah. that mom why, why does she go and yeah. why why would your grandparents go mm-hmm. like I know my my parents are like uh, late sixties early seventies mm-hmm. and you know they have their whole track set they know where they're gonna get ice cream <laughs> they da, da, da. like they they're not gonna go on the crazy rides they have yeah. their their, their curmudgeonly in their way of like we're gonna do these things. Whereas, like, you were talking before about going and just seeing the architecture. Like, it'd be cool to see how many people went for what things. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that is pretty interesting. But the thing is, Disneyland will facilitate a lot of that if you want to. Like I was telling Amy earlier, um, that there's actually really cool hidden places that you can just chill in Disneyland, and there will be almost no one around you. Um, And also, if you want to go really frantic, you could do that. But if you don't want to chill or have fun, go to Toontown. Uh, What is is your almost fun, Amy? Oh, so my almost fun is actually, I I really hate, and Disneyland is guilty of this, as is every theme park, as is every airport. I really hate price gouging. Mm. I really, really hate that. Mm. And Disneyland is no exception. You walk in, the minute you go in there, if you don't have food with you, you're kind of forced to buy the food at the park. Yeah. And... Um, I'm also like kind of a health nut as well as, you know, many other hats, but I really don't like the type of food that they have at Disneyland to start Mm -hmm. with. Um, When I, I don't know if they do this at Six Flags anymore, but back, I used to live on the East Coast and when we go to Six Flags, they would not let you bring food into the park. Uh, I know they let you do it in Disneyland, but at Six Flags, they wouldn't let you. So you'd be forced to buy the type of food they have there, which is unhealthy food. (laughs) It's poor quality food and it's way overpriced. Yeah. And Disney, I don't think you have to buy the food there. You do get to bring food into the park. But if you want to have a meal there, it's all overpriced food that is terrible for you and not great portions. Right. So, and it's it's funny because they do spend a lot of time getting you into their world, mm-hmm. which is the point. They want you to become engaged in it and they want you to lose yourself and have fun. And there's a lot of subtle things like the smell and the... Um, the music that's played, the, the layout, the attractions, everything gets you into it, but nothing gets you out of it faster than when you see like the Buzz Lightyear toy for $30, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh yeah, they're trying to make money, and it kind of breaks that cool fantasy that they've worked so hard to build. Yeah, it would be, and one of the things like Disney World, Disneyland, any of the amusement parks, that's the type of vacation a lot of lower income people like to take because mm-hmm. it is affordable yeah. for them. They're not going to fly their kids to Paris. That's not going to happen. They don't have that kind of money. And Disneyland, like you mentioned before, is for everybody. Yeah. So you want to bring the whole family to enjoy this. And the kids are going to want souvenirs. They're, it's, it's a shame that they do that price gouging from it. Yeah. In, um, they have Tokyo Disney in Japan. And my sister went there. And she said there was a line around the block just to get this popcorn from this machine because it came with a pail. Uh And it was a cheap thing you could get that was a souvenir that you could take home and show people that you had had enough money to go to Tokyo Disney. Wow. Yeah, that's just to get this pail because Mm. people can't afford to get the $30 Buzz Lightyear doll or like the $60 dress or whatever that's there. That's so crazy. Yeah, that's definitely that does break the mood a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a shame because they work so hard to get you in that uh, fun, carefree mood. All right, so let's do a little bit of certified fun. This is certified fun. Yeah. 
Um, so my certified fun is I'm going to do a couple of Tony Baxter rides. Um, I got to interview Tony Baxter about a year ago, and uh, I'm going to post his interview um, either as an article or as a video at whatmakesafun.com. So be sure to check that out soon. Uh, Tony Baxter was amazing uh, ride designer. Uh, a couple of his hits were Splash Mountain, um, uh, Thunder Mountain, and the original Star Tours. Uh, what I like about uh, Thunder Mountain is what he did was he had this space in the middle of the park that he wanted to... Roller coasters were starting to become big at the time, I believe in the early 70s, and Disney wasn't doing a good job of competing with that market. So he made a he made a roller coaster which was Thunder Mountain that didn't go very fast, but it feels like it goes fast because he uses a lot of banks in his in the ride. It banks a lot and it goes up and down. It never goes straight for the most part. There's a lot of movement, so it feels like you're going fast all the time. So it's a very smart way of using the space that they had. Um, the other thing is that he was really into immersion. So when you first go into um, um, Thunder Mountain, you go down. And once you go low enough and you start going around in, in the queue, uh, all you can see around you is old Western stuff because you're underneath everything else. So you can't see the Matterhorn's top or you can't see Tomorrowland. You're totally immersed in this old Western town. And that's done on purpose to make you get you into the experience. That's a very smart way of doing it because you can't see anything. He literally puts you underneath, uh, un underneath everything else so you can't see anything and it just gets you more into the world. So it's more about just the thrills. It's more about having a roller coaster on the side of a mountain. It's about an experience and, and get, getting you into the experience. So that's one thing he was really good at. Another thing I liked is when I interviewed him, he was talking about Splash Mountain. And I love Splash Mountain because it has such a cool dynamic of really fun kitty animatronics and then like really scary <laughs> like drop. And he pays it and he has a story throughout it. And um, everything is so well done on Splash Mountain. I can't even, that's gonna be, actually if you listen to our interview with, uh, Tony, with uh, Tony Baxter, you could, uh, he talks a little more about it. But it's so well done and so well paced and it's such a cool story that um, it's got everything in it. It's a lot of rides just rely on thrills and some rely on story, but this one does both very well. Uh, and it's really, I don't know, I can't say enough about Splash Mountain. Um, so that's my certified fun. Um, my certified fun is in Disney World, uh, where I visited a lot uh, when I was a kid. Um, and that's at Epcot Center. They have the World Showcase, which mm -hmm. is something that they don't have at Disneyland. And it was always uh, my favorite reason to go to Epcot Center. Because, you, you know, Magic Kingdom has a lot of great rides. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hollywood Disney has, you know, like a, a lot, lot of fun um, attractions. But the World Showcase was so individualistic to Epcot. And for me, when I was a kid, as someone who didn't travel almost anywhere in the world, um, it was this really nice way to visit. And what the World Showcase is, for people who don't know, is there's a, there's a big lake, and then around the edge of the lake are tons of like mini towns that represent each di a bunch of different countries around the world. So mm -hmm. there's Canada, there's Morocco, and Mexico, and France, and Japan, and there's a whole bunch of them. And you can just walk around the whole lake and on foot 
go to each of these different places. And everybody who's in these mini town versions of the country are dressed in the traditional garb. They're selling uh, food products that come from that uh, that area, and they you know have other products. And some of them have rides mm. that are based on like the legends of Norway or here's mm. Mexico. Oh, Mexico is the best. They have a big Aztec temple, and you can go inside and just see like these beautiful wares that are just so much beautiful jewelry. Everything uh, inside the Aztec temple, uh. Uh, it's made to look like. Um, like a street market at night. So oh, inside cool. it's all dark blue on the top with like stars and there's it's made like like it's nighttime mm -hmm. and it's just gorgeous and then there's a small river inside and you can take a boat on that river around and do a little ride for Mexico. And it's just and I think there's yeah, I think the three caballeros are in there too. <laughs> but it's just like That's a cool. really fun experience. It's like it's slower paced. You're not like frantic mm -hmm. running around the park. You're really enjoying each area and exploring and looking at the architecture and being a part of that nation, even if it's fictitious and even if it's just in a small town for just a moment. It was just a really cool way to like see the world represented and very quickly, very nice. That's so cool because um, Tony Baxter said that one of the biggest things of Disneyland as in general as of its design is that they wanted everything to be different. They wanted to have a fantasy world. They wanted you to be scared. They wanted you to be happy. They wanted you to be sad. They wanted you to be intrigued. They wanted you to do, they wanted you to be on a pirate ship and then in a UFO and then in a, in a you know, with Peter Pan and then um, on a train in the Old West because if you had a bunch of similar experiences, they wouldn't stand out and you wouldn't, it would be a blur. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you could say, oh man, I got scared in this mansion and then I went over here to, uh, you know, I went into space and then like it's, there's so crazy different experiences that that's how you remember them. They all stand out because they're all very different. And it seems like that experience that you had in, was that in a, in a nutshell. It's like all these different cool things that don't blur together. Yeah, yeah, I definitely say that that sums up that experience. If you haven't gone, you should absolutely go. It's just it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. Yes, I haven't gone. I want to go to Disney World. Um, all right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can catch us at whatmakesitfun.com, and you can catch Amy at ameliaclover.com and Amelia Clover VO on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for uh, joining us again. Um, have fun. <laughs>